Hey everybody, this is Aaron from the Everything Elite Podcast. I want to thank you all so much for listening to our show. Hopefully you found this episode because you already subscribed to our feed. But if you don't, however you are listening to this right now, whatever app you're using, it's got to have a subscribe button. Hit subscribe. You'll get our free weekly episodes every Thursday morning when they come out. We record right after Dynamite every Wednesday night, post in the next morning. This is not one of those episodes, though. This is something altogether different. Our podcast is supported by the people who subscribe over at patreon.com slash everything elite. We put out a lot of bonus content over there. Now, for the first time ever, we've decided to unlock one of those episodes and put it in this free feed so that everybody gets a chance to check it out. And it gives you an idea of what we're doing over on Patreon. You can decide whether you want to go over to patreon.com slash everything elite and support us. The episode that we've decided to share is part of a series that we call This Is. If you listen to the show, you know that's how I start the show. (laughs) So uh, we came up with the idea to do a series of episodes diving Uh, deeply into the careers of various AEW roster members. The very first one we did was Cody. We've done the Young Bucks. Most recently, we did CM Punk and Brian Danielson. Uh, This episode, though, is about Jon Moxley. This episode originally came out about a year ago while Moxley was still the AEW champion, but it's not time-sensitive because we're not talking about what he was doing then, We're talking about his entire career. We start all the way from the beginning. We talk about his training. Then we talk about his time in uh, Puerto Rico, DGUSA, WWE. Uh, There's a blood sport match we talk about. There's a New Japan match we talk about. We picked five matches. This was Mike and me. We picked five matches and we kind of traced his career through those matches. A little help from uh, information we could get from the Uh, Wrestling Observer Newsletter along the way, but it's just a fun 90-minute or so uh, adventure through John Moxley's career, so we thought this was a good one for everybody to check out. I think you'll like it. If you do, head over to patreon.com slash everything elite. We got three tiers to subscribe over there. Uh, All the info's there. You go to the website, you'll see it. Subscribe, you'll get this. You'll get lots of other things. So check it out. Uh, Let us know your feedback on it. We'd love to hear from you. And enjoy. This is... This is John Moxley. I'm actually driving this time, y'all. It's your old pal Iron Mike Spears, joined as always by Aaron Bentley. Uh, Aaron, how did how did that this is sound to you? Do you feel like I I came in a little strong, or did I hit the notes exactly as is? I don't know if you could see it because my windsock uh, kind of covers up my face, but I got a big grin on my face. I was very happy about it. I thought it sounded great. Uh, so congratulations, Mike. Good job. It's my back of the hall, the back of the house projection that I was taught. 
yeah, that I, I, like. I did from the diaphragm, you know, not from the throat, not using my head voice, using my big manly uh, chest voice. Now, now, Mike, uh, now that we found out that your whiteboard is right behind you, which has yes. changed so much. Now I want to know, OK, we've got the Mike's mental health meter. Right. I'm, I'm familiar with that. But then there's something to uh, my right, your left of. Well, when you turn around, it'll be to your right of the mental health meter. What am I looking at there? You mean right here? Yeah. Oh, that's a Makita sticker. That's it. Oh, yeah. With, with the hat that you got, probably. Yeah, I just came with like, when I got the uh, Neo Ito Respect Army stuff. So Okay, I, I just couldn't sticker. tell what it was from here. Looks cool. Yes, just, just to describe what I have on this back wall, as podcasting is a visual medium, got yes. the whiteboard, got the Maki Ito sticker right there, my Konami 8x10, my Sadaharo O painting, and then my brother once got me, this is like the above this, I don't know if you were able to see it, Aaron, it is the original patents or like reproduction of the original patents for baseballs and bats. So, oh, well, wow. no, I can only the mo highest I can see is I believe the top of your whiteboard. Okay. I I was just unfamiliar about, about distance and then I have random handbills that I've got from uh, a GPS when I got my Triangle Lancer t-shirt around my board and then a lot of uh bounce phone. So people so my sound does not sound like a cavern because I do my office is in a cavern. Like it, I I'm in the narrow end of it and that's why Everyone's perception was completely fucked up, but I, my office is a very long, narrow room. Now that I see it, of course, I can't unsee it. It's one of those things. Uh, I can obviously tell you got that bookcase there and right, you know, yes. where that wall is. But before, I uh, just had no idea, man. Wow. <laughs> I mean, like, and we've been doing this, at least with this setup, for over a year now. I would yeah. think that you'd that, that you would have picked up on it, but I guess not, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, that that's fine that's fine observation is not necessary for this field no it's not yeah. so this week or for this edition of this is we're covering john moxley the current aew world's heavyweight champion someone whose career i'm a little bit more intimately familiar with so that's why i'm taking the wheel here of course y'all probably know i've been doing a full year study into the history of dgusa john moxley figured really heavily into that so we just figured that it'd probably be better for me to kind of do the recommendations and be the one throwing out the uh, notes for this for this one but aaron when was the first time you heard of john moxley the first okay so i took a very long break from watching pro wrestling right uh the early 2000s until uh about 2013 2014 so I think when I got back into wrestling, well, he, w he was already in in developmental, right? Yes, he, he, but, was, he was signed to developmental in 2011. But when I started getting in back into it and then kind of becoming aware of the indies again, he was still kind of referred to as like a big indie guy. You know, as like somebody who was really good on the indies and was expected to be there for you know, really good at some point in WWE. Uh, I'm not sure when his episode was on um, Cole Cabana's podcast. Sure. I'm not sure when that came out, but I definitely listened to that. And But the first time I would have actually seen him wrestle would have been uh, in The Shield. Yeah, that's why I, I figured, like, I know that you're break, because he did do some IWA Mid-South, but that was probably during your hiatus. But... He's an interesting person, John Moxley, and 
definitely it did seem like that the there is like a delineation point like you're talking about the people that were first exposed to him through wwe and then the people that were following the indies and i i feel like that's kind of like a natural sort of inclination for people i i, I think especially at least like because his indies time was between the first indie boom and the, the most recent one so he came about during one of the lulls that was like right after uh ring of honor took off and then everyone got signed up for ring of honor and they were kind of rebuilding this was like really deep into the uh austin aries era of ring of honor being surrounded it so just to give people a sense of time so you know it doesn't surprise me too much to hear that especially given like he's an interesting enough guy that i mean he's practically from your neck of the woods he basically started his career in your neck of the woods that's interesting how at least how indie wrestling is that for for a guy who is really like a Ohio River Valley person that he did not necessarily become like that big of a figure that you would have known of him before uh, the Shield. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if I had been following wrestling during that time, I'm sure uh, I would have been aware of him on some level. Even if even if I wasn't like really tied into the indies, you probably uh, around this area you probably couldn't have escaped it if you were into wrestling. But yeah, not having any. I mean, I, when I was out, I was out of wrestling. I had no real connection to it. So I missed all that. Uh, but yeah, when I got back into it, he was uh, doing the Shield thing and the, you know, with the CM Punk thing and all that. And I was pretty immediately uh, taken with the whole group. Like, I thought they were all pretty interesting as a group. And uh, like I said, that that probably led me to go back and listen to the Colcabana episode with him and find out more about his time on the indies. But then when I started like digging in a little bit to that, mostly what I would see was like promo stuff. That's kind of what people would focus on. And they were weird as fuck, man. It was like, I don't know. This guy's weird. <laughs> What's his deal? <laughs> and it's something that, so just to go over the five matches we're going to talk about, and we're going to talk about his story. Like they're then we have one match from Dragon Gate USA. This was his big feud against Jimmy Jacobs. A match in FCW, it's Ambrose versus Regal 2. The debut match of The Shield at TLC 2012. Uh, him versus Tomohiro Ishii at the G1 last year. And then the Dirty Daddy versus uh, uh, John Moxley match at Bloodsport this year. So I feel like we got like a interesting match sample because it really, he is someone that I think at first glance, everyone knows him for his promo skills. And it's very interesting like delving into him, looking back, and especially like this period before he was known for his promos because he was someone who was in the indies for a long time before DGUSA. And I mean, he is someone who got started very young in wrestling. Yeah, and I and I have a big take on his wrestling. If if you listen to you know the first version of of this uh this style of the This Is episodes where we talked about Chris Jericho, I traced like a couple of moves or especially a specific move that tied through Jericho, but you also like saw his wrestling style change through all those matches. So I, I don't want to, you know, go into that take until we've talked about some more of these matches, but yeah, his, you really, we didn't watch promos for this, but you know, I've seen some of his promos obviously from those times. And then of course I've seen a million of them from WWE and since then, and that's something you can really know about how it's progressed through his career. And I'd, I'd argue that that's like the through point is his promos. And it's interesting to me, at least, because one of the things that I 
kind of watched to get us ready for this was there was a shoot interview that he did with smart mark video right before he got signed talking about like how he just was out of wrestling and cut like this route and was brought back in by drake younger of all people in 2007 and 2008 and just like started rambling and got into just a weird headspace and went with it and this promo is still online it happened at ipw i don't know if you ever saw this one this is like one of the most bizarre promos I've ever seen. And that's saying something from John Moxley where he like starts like that. There's a, uh, there's an interviewer that's with him and he like basically just makes her uncomfortable, like not like sexually or or, like physically. She, he's just very weird. And then he, he, he like takes a long like smell and says, you smell like the inside of my mama's purse. And it's just like very like, yeah, very raw, just John Moxley as a guy who is already basically went through wrestling, fell out of wrestling, was brought back into wrestling in 2007, 2008. And ever since then, like this one promo for like the last 11 years for when I would say that promos are his own doing versus WWE scripted promos, there is a through line there. And it's very interesting to me that he's a guy more known for his promos than his ring skills. And I would say that looking at just talking about like, a through line between the matches really other than like the WWE, like shield matches, he's not someone who I would say necessarily has evolved a whole lot move wise or like style wise throughout his career. Yeah. Okay. Well, if we're going to talk about it, then I'll go ahead and and do my take now, but it's basically that Moxley is really an interesting character as a wrestler. I'll say I went into this, not thinking very highly of Moxley as a worker, as like an in-ring guy. And I come away with a much, a much deeper respect for his ring work, even though there's really no difference between his work in this DGUSA match and his work in the uh, Bloodsport match that we talked about last. He's a guy who's basically been able to do the same work throughout his career. And what's interesting about that is he's a brawler, right? That's his style of wrestling. But he's not a terribly gifted striker. He's not, he does a lot of uh, submission stuff. He's not terribly great at that. There's, he's not particularly athletic. He's really, he gets by on uh, charisma, on his presence, and on his will, his willingness to go beyond physically or, you know, in the type of violence that he's willing to do in the ring. He, I mean, what's the difference? Other than like a, he's a little bit cleaner, what's the difference between John Moxley and Nick Gage? I, I would say that the only difference is that John Moxley spent time in like la- in the last territories where he like learned like territorial brawling stuff, whereas Nick Gage is just unfiltered brawling. Right, but it's like they're pretty similar as like full the full picture of them as wrestlers. Uh, you know, Moxley is a lot, especially nowadays, a lot more cleaned up. You know than than Nick Gage is right now. But it's pretty fascinating to me that it would be hard if you just want to talk about his ring work. It would be hard for me to come at you with something he is especially good at as a wrestler. But it's the whole package when you put it together that really works. And it's something that like this package. So the the shoot that was from 2011, he's someone who his career, he doesn't really talk a lot about how he started. He was someone that incorporated a lot of his tough upbringing. I mean, he was, he's from a very uh, economically disadvantaged area of Ohio. He, he had addicts in his family and he just 
found wrestling and immediately just was bug people bugged hwa started in at 16 doing stuff with hwa and was fully like trained in wrestling at age 18 and just was so like full force that like he pestered tommy dreamer when he was a 19 year old to get a tryout and he was willing to drive to the carolinas against eminem and did a show on velocity i don't know if this velocity match ever made tv but after that he went to puerto rico and for people who aren't too familiar with the history of Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico kind of was the last territory. And especially like in the early 2000s when he was there, it still was a place that people could work consistently. He talked about basically being being 20 years old in Puerto Rico, being hot shit, wrestling three days a week, uh, training and working out the other three days a week, having a lot of expendable income, which is something he made like a big point of. Like I was 20, first time I really even had any money. I was in Puerto Rico when everything was cheap and I just got really deep into as he very matter of factly said got really deep into drinking doing coke and pills and he talked about like it just was like a lifestyle thing it was like this was something that like i got a lot of my screw-ups out of the way in puerto rico and i also saw how puerto rico as a territory uh, how familiar familiar are you ab with puerto rico and puerto rico as a wrestling territory i haven't watched a ton of it but i know a decent amount about it mostly through uh, you know, being into Bruiser Brody and like learning stuff about Brody. Uh, I, I mean, I think like there's a real, there's a, there are similarities, I think, between John Moxley and Bruiser Brody in a way. I thought a lot about Brody as I was watching these matches. I don't, I mean, Moxley, at least nowadays, is not as violent or as scary as Brody was at his peak. Uh, but he does strike me when I was watching the Ishii match, which we'll talk about later. He struck me as like, oh, if this had, if WWE had never happened for this guy, he could have easily gone to Japan and, and made a go of it as uh, a gaijin there. And of course, Bruiser Brody, probably most well known for him being murdered in Puerto Rico. But it, 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 there is like, like when you're talking about Nick Gage, like the thing is, is that if Nick Gage kind of is somewhat like an Abdul the Butcher style kind of thing, then definitely Moxley is Bruiser Brody. And that comes out of the Puerto Rican style of wrestling. It's very bloody. It's very brawl heavy. He said he went into Puerto Rico as like a technician. And then he found out that he was just going to be like this booed heel. He faked being English for a little bit. And then he was just like, I'm just going to be just all out, just be an asshole. And it, it took to him. And it, the one thing I kind of wish we were able to do with this, like we picked five matches and I didn't necessarily want to get stuff to him before DGSA. It would have been interesting to find like this tryout match he had with uh, uh, uh with Morrison and and Matthews uh, or Mercury uh, Eminem on Velocity like in 2006 because I feel like that that like when we were watching the Jericho one how we saw Jericho kind of evolve from being in WAR versus how he was in ECW I feel like we would have had that moment if we had like this preamble match if we had like a preview match from uh before he went to Puerto Rico yeah though by the time we saw Jericho in japan he's kind of already figured out who he is i mean he's not the style that he is now you know but he's already figured out the style he would basically have in wcw um and early wwe so this would probably be a very different version of moxley but i really like what you said about nick gage as abby and uh, moxley as brody like i think that's pretty fascinating actually pretty interesting way to think about it and if uh you know ho hopefully once nick gage is healthy again like there's apparently a real chance that we see Nick Gage show up in AEW. So we could see matches between those two. 
Yeah, and I feel like that'd be real interesting, especially given like the kind of matches he had with uh, Eddie Kingston. And I feel like that that's something that that's straight in his wheelhouse where he can do like promo heavy brawling. And, you know, it kind of like just transition to our first match that we're going to talk about. This is from Dragon Gate USA Bushido Code of the Warrior 2010. It was outside of Boston, Massachusetts on October 29th, 2010. And like talking about like brawling and bruising and and like his contemporary, the guy of, that did it just like of the other indie boom was against him in this match. This was an I quit match against Jimmy Jacobs. And the, the, knowing that you are not as much of a pre-evolve a WWE guy, the, what were your thoughts overall about getting right into like 2010 Gabe, like at the peak of 2010 Gabe? I mean, this looked like every Evolve show, you know, just like it had, it was in this like dingy building. It wasn't well lit. Nothing looked good. Uh, the the good thing about Gabe that was there was Lenny Leonard was on the call. So that was a positive thing. But yeah, this just struck me as like, yeah, I bet this is what Gabe was doing in 2010. It did. The only like big difference I'll say for people who are big Evolve heads, especially like they're like, everything evolves and how the period was from like 2017 to 2018 Gabe in this time period, he had a little bit of money that he put straight towards the weirdest things, such as always <laughs> licensing metal songs for music videos before all these big matches. And that, that that's Gabe, uh, Lenny doing a call solo. So, I mean, that's pretty standard fare here. This was a big blow off in DG USA and just like, uh, like a quick two minute thing for our listeners who aren't too familiar with DGUSA. This was formed after Gabe got fired from ROH. He had a relationship with Dragon Gate beforehand. The Dragon Gate was the most popular Japanese promotion in the West at the time. And they launched a promotion that originally was just going to be doing like six, it was going to be like six weekends a year. And then it turned into three weekend double shots. And then eventually because of Gabe never being able to draw money, really it fell apart. And John Moxley was the guy that he saw after he got fired from Ring of Honor. He went to an FIP show and saw his promos, and he fell in love with John Moxley. John Moxley, probably before Johnny Gargano became like his latest American guy, it was John Moxley, and he found a way in this promotion that was exclusively like Japanese style promotion and done in the Dragon Gate style of a lot of tags, a lot of unit warfare. He decided to give him to one of the units in Kamikaze USA as like the American mouthpiece. But the interesting thing about this, Aaron is, do you know how, what John Moxley's opinion of Dragon Gate is? I have no idea. He hates it. <laughs> that, that tracks. It's really he, uh, antithetical to his style. Yeah. He hates it. His wrestling style. He says like, this does not work with how I wrestle. He hated rest. He hated wrestling. Gets the Dragon Gate guys because a Dragon Gate style is the most common thing to the uh, indie sprint and i mean he's a brawler and like this happened and weirdly enough he only had like one match like the one match we changed for a shield match was like his one big singles match against a japanese wrestler his time in dragon gate usa he first had a long feud with tommy dreamer and that was really weird and it kind of shifted into jimmy jacobs and then later homicide but this was kind of the big takeoff point for him at least amongst the the smarter wrestling fans in the newsletters was this blood feud that ended with a really bloody I quit match between him and Jimmy Jacobs. That's kind of interesting that you say that. And I hate to get out of order, but when we start talking about his WWE run, maybe we'll come back to this, but it's like, oh, as this guy really got going in WWE, it was shifting to an indie sprint style. 
the the house style in WWE was shifting there. And so I, I think that may go even more to why Moxley in ring didn't really work in, in WWE very well. Yeah. And he was the bloodbath worker in Dragon Gate USA. And I know that we've just came off of an I quit match, a big one. It's interesting seeing another one done on the Indies where, you know, kind of like the uh, Eddie Kingston one, this is not like a crazy spot per spot per spot spot match. This is the only weapons they really had were a chair, spikes, and a belt. And they just proceeded to bleed for 15 minutes. Yeah, this was a great match, honestly. I really loved this match. Um, it it showed that you can escalate a match in 15 minutes. It doesn't have to take 35 minutes. Even a blood feud, like a real blood feud, where you can tell... I mean, I could tell these guys hated each other, and I knew nothing about the story except what Lenny Leonard told me and what was in the music video at the beginning. Uh, but they were able to get all that done in 15 minutes. Um, I loved that spot where Jimmy Jacobs was handcuffed behind his back, and he worked that into a uh, choke. You know, he was able to choke Moxley while handcuffed. I, my main thought was Darby Allen needs to do this spot in a match. He should just steal this and do it. Um, and as for like just Mox in the match, this is, you know, first thing I was like, well, it's pretty similar to what we see now. He's probably more athletic and fluid at this time in his career, but a very similar offensive attack. You can already see all the charisma. Uh, so uh, interesting place to start with Mox. Yeah, and Jimmy Jacobs at this time was known mainly like this is a time after he got fired from Ring of Honor for drug use. Uh, he cleaned himself back up and he was back in Ring of Honor pretty soon after this. But Gabe brought him into this promotion because he ne he needed he thought he needed to have more Americans basically out front because he had big issues like trying to do angles with Japanese wrestlers and trying to like figure out how do I book month to month and story to story with this. So. They had Jimmy Jacobs along in with this. And this was really kind of, I think, the match in 2010 that really kind of set him apart as a brawler. He did do a bunch of death matches between Ian Rotten and IWA Mid-South and DJ Hyde and CCW. But those are viewed so differently at this time period than something like this, which is just like a full-out bloodbath for 15 minutes. Uh, the big things were the, the spike. Of course, Jimmy Jacobs loves the spike. Another kind of like Bruiser Brody thing in there. And they ended up having big spike battles. Uh, uh, Jimmy Jacobs had a belt on his boot and he took it off and started whipping and later it got tied behind his his arms behind his back, like A.B. said. And then leading into a very bloody finishing stretch. This this is realistically probably one of the most I've seen someone bleed on a major U.S. indie show. And it ended with like the most like the, the most like I get it on why you would you would submit John Moxley lost this match because Jimmy Jacobs started spiking him in the groin repeatedly, repeatedly. He's like, you know what? I quit. I quit. I'm done here. And just was like a real tour de force uh, match, I feel like. And this is one of those DGSA matches that you wouldn't really think about going back and watching, but it still is like this excellent uh, indie brawl and one of the better indie I quit matches in my opinion. I kind of hated the finish. Like, I just thought it was like a little goofy. I, I mean, it's Gabe. Yes. It was very like... 2010 culturally <laughs> like of what would happen there uh so yeah that was kind of a bummer for me but the rest of the match was so good that i'm okay with it yeah jimmy jacobs was bleeding an insane amount i mean literally having to wipe his eyes so that he could see uh we didn't talk about john moxley having moxicity <laughs> on his tie <laughs> <laughs> which really cracked me up <laughs> yeah the one thing i'll say he's definitely improved over the last like 
10 years, he understands imagery and branding a lot better than he did when he first started. Yeah, I, I could see that. Uh, but it's funny because it's like even his body. I mean, obviously, he's aged, whatever, 10 years and he's gotten in a little better shape. But he kind of also just looks the same as he did. He's lost some hair, obviously. So uh, a real Mox has just been able to like do Mox for uh, for whatever, 15 years now. Yeah, and it's something that I think that it's interesting how he's kind of stayed consistent like that. Uh, it's interesting to me, like this kind of thing and this kind of match and a promotion like this. That was so like a part of everything else. He then had a feud with Homicide, AB, that was so bad that they put it on pay-per-view. And here's the, the finish of this feud. It was another blood feud. That's what they he really did was uh, Homicide was so pissed off by him. He uh, knocked him out then pulled uh, with a cop killer, then pulled Moxley on top of him for a three count, and then went to go find scissors to cut off his tongue. This is Gabe, <laughs> this is Gabe in 2010. <laughs> oh, jeez. And you talk about other things. So this was towards his end. He would be signed by WWE in April 2011. Uh, he, this was after he finished second in the Observer Awards in 2010 for Best Brawler and Top 10 for Best Interviews. I, I did not put this in the notes because I wanted to spring this on you. So I'm just going to let you take a guess. His last weekend was WrestleMania weekend 2011, Dragon Gate USA. They had two shows in Atlanta. Do you know how he was, what his last feud and his last match was in Dragon Gate USA? I actually read this earlier and I'm trying to remember what it was. Uh, but no, I, I do not remember now. So he was feuding with Rebby Sky. Oh, wow. I did. Maybe I didn't read this. I thought I did. Gabe brought in Rebby Sky, now known as Rebby Hardy, into into DGUSA because she was a Howard Stern calling girl and was like <laughs> Miss. She was Miss. She was Miss Howard Stern for 2009. She was a Giants girl. And John Moxley and in Gabe form, Gabe had a pretty culturally insensitive feud between the two of them. And it basically ended to like, this is also how Rebby. Sky met Matt Hardy because Matt Hardy was at the WrestleMania shows completely just not in good place. And the, the, you could blame Gabe for pretty much all of that. And then the, the feud was that he eventually he was so mad at Akira Tozawa, who at that time was the most popular guy on the Indies, not wanting to beat up Rebby Sky for him. So uh, he kicked Akira Tozawa out of Kamikaze USA. And then he said, all right, Tozawa, if you beat me in a bunkhouse match, this night, I will leave the company and get your title match. It was a four-minute match. That's his hour one, and that's it. That's That was his last DGUSA match. Gabe knew he was signed, and that's what he put forth for him. A bunkhouse match, huh? Yeah, do you think Akira Tozawa knows what a bunkhouse match is? I'm guessing I'm guessing he doesn't. I'm going to be honest. Nope, <laughs> nope. And it was impromptu, too, so it was not like that. that like Tozawa was like in his normal like shorts doing a bunkhouse match. Sure, that's very you funny. Know? That sounds like something I would want to watch. Uh, that's funny. I think it's interesting that he was second uh, for best brawler at this time. I feel like, I don't know, maybe he was uh, a bigger deal than I perceived him as with the passage of time before uh, you know, when he was in finishing up on the Indies. I mean, he was in CZW. I think he was a CZW a deathmatch champion for a bit. And but this was like a time period that like him and Necro Butcher were like the two big like the Indies were doing a whole lot of brawls then. So it, it made sense. I think like 
I think the winner of that year, I could go back all through my notes and figure, because I know I've talked about this before. I want to say it was either Necro or maybe uh, Kevin Steen, or Ke- currently known as Kevin Owens, were the uh, ones who beat him out. So like it was very much within the style of the time. Got it. Well, I, I mean, it's fascinating the the way that WWE has treated the indies or signed people over the years. Like looking back at this, Moxley doesn't, you know, come out to me like jump out to me as someone that they would necessarily be interested in. He doesn't really have anything they want other than size. Right. Yeah. He's a, he's got good size, but you know, they don't really care if you can cut promos. He doesn't really work a, a WWE style. Uh, so it's fascinating to me that he happened to uh, be around at a time that he got. And I know uh, from doing some reading that he had two or three tryout matches before uh, or two or three tryouts before he ever got signed, but just interesting that he hooked up with them at all. Yeah, so the way that it went for him was like he was already on the WWE radar when he was a 19 and 20 year old, came back from Puerto Rico, had a tryout that bombed so poorly because he was, as he said, I lost a lot of weight. I was drinking and doing a lot of pills at the time. So Johnny Ace looked at me and said, what the fuck is your deal? He had another tryout that happened right before the signature pharmacy scandal and then kind of just left wrestling and came back in talking about the Drake, the Drake younger connection, bring him back in the Midwest and then. Gabe kind of sent him in the way. I mean, this was the thing. And, and I know this is Joe Lanz's affair talking point, but you went to go work for Gabe at this time and you got signed. And that worked for him. Talking about who they were signing at the time, I do have this really funny note from the May 30th, 2011 Observer. Here are the people who are in John Moxley's uh, WWE uh, tryout intake class. Uh, he, his, he was listed as his real name, Jonathan Good. That's out there. I don't feel bad about it saying that but also people in his tryout class ethan levin a six foot six 270 pound israeli who's built as a self-made millionaire diamond wholesaler so yes they were doing <laughs> blood diamond stuff they were doing god of war thing right there uh alexander rusev a six foot flat 305 pounder who is built together like a tank one of those guys you see on the world's strongest man uh shows on espn2 all this dave Meltzer, by the way so rusev was in his induction class Ted DiBiase's son, Brett DiBiase, who's been in the news lately for Medicare scamming and is currently in jail, I believe, at this time. Audrey Marie, who was like big, like, like before Summer Rae was the big, like, cause du jour, Audrey Marie was the big uh, women's prospect cause for sure. And someone whose name is Eden Styles, who I'm not going to quote Dave here because Dave, not very good about this kind of stuff, <laughs> says, says, I- I, I will quote it because it's very okay. funny. Uh, I mean, it's like, it's funny because of what it is. It's the other is, side, by the way. Yes. The other is named Eden Styles, who looks like a fitness competitor with the abs and muscularity and fake big boobs. <laughs> that is Dave for you. It's Dave Meltzer, baby. And of course, if you do not know, if you're not familiar with that name, Eden Styles is now better known as Brandy Rhodes. I did not realize that Rusev came into the WWE system that early. Yeah. And he only did like a couple like months of training with Gangrel and Rikishi before this. Yeah. Like when, when I was getting back into everything is when he like popped up on NXT at some point around that time. And I just kind of figured he was a pretty new signing at that point. So I didn't realize he had been around for like three, four years before that ever happened. Right. Yeah. And as you said, like, uh, 
he became Dean Ambrose, did not really fit any sort of mold whatsoever for what they were doing. So they kind of had him start a feud with William Regal that kind of became the big uh, trademark feud of FCW in its last few years before it turned into NXT. And it, and it ended with a fight. This match, this next match we watched was the last ever FCW match. It was a rematch between Dean Ambrose and William Regal from uh, the the rematch happened on July 15th, 2012. And did you ever get much into FCW? Like, I know, again, this is like, uh, this is right before you got back into it. But like, were you aware of this feud whatsoever? Or were you aware of kind of how FCW was before, like the Shield, basically? Yeah, I know some FCW stuff. And I've watched uh, some stuff here and there. I knew about this feud, but I'd never watched this match before. Uh, the fascinating thing is, you know, they got these big posters in the back. And we see uh, Alex. The, these are people that I noticed. Alex Riley, Bo Rotundo, Mason Ryan, and Leo Kruger. Murderer's Row there, baby. <laughs> and, and, like, that's the wild thing about FCW. So this is before NXT. They basically went. This was a converted uh, Winn-Dixie that they made into an arena that had Dusty Rhodes and Jim Ross on the call for this match that, you know, like, you, you can't watch this and not think, oh, this is a developmental product. Like this, and this definitely. is on TV, right? This is on Bright House, uh, Bright House right. Sports Network. Yeah, Bright House Sports, which is a Florida regional sports carrier. Yeah, if you ever, if you had like the MLB package, uh, you know, when you ever, when you watch like Tampa Bay games, they were on, they, uh, there was a time where they were on Bright House. Yeah. So it, this was all before Triple H really came in and revamped things. But the interesting feud they would have WWE people come into SCW. And this was towards the end of William Regal's entering career. And the the like one evolution point I'll say is like there is, and especially watching the uh, New Japan and the Bloodsport match we watched after this, he you do kind of feel like that uh, John Moxley picked up a lot out of this match and added it to his move set, especially William Regal's like signature moves. Absolutely, he took uh, the the Regal knee lift and carried that on. Well, and he uses the the STF also. Uh, so something else that he took from uh, William Regal. Also, I was going to say also, uh, Sasha, Sasha Banks is in the crowd uh, at this show. That was her. Yeah. Yeah. You can <laughs> see her at the end there. And I didn't pause it and go back to look, but she's like standing with some other wrestlers. So I thought that was interesting, but um, this match was fascinating. Uh, you know, Regal also had those Cesaro matches. You know, he's like good at this, at this type of match uh, where it's basically, you know, Moxley, for my, what I've read, my understanding is uh, they wrestled once, Regal beat him, and then Moxley basically stalked him for like a year trying to demand a rematch. And uh, so, yeah, the story here is basically that he needed to, he was obsessed with like getting that win back, you know? He was really obsessed with, uh, with beating him. Uh, of course, ultimately, he was unable to in the match because they had to stop it uh, because Regal's ear gets opened up like really bad. And presumably gets concussed from getting knocked into the uh, to the ring post or not the ring post, but the the turnbuckle here. Yeah, and so, so like the feud was leading up to it was that uh, Ambrose was kind of like the big thing that they kind of pushed Ambrose as in Dusty Rhodes is on the call, kept on calling this is like this James Dean rebel without a cause kind of person and. Uh, basically regal identified him as like i was you once this is a very kind of dangerous road you're walking down something that he kind of picked up and applied to the darby feud by the way which i think is kind of 
kind of funny. And oh, the that, first yeah, match, that's a good pull. Yeah. Yeah. And so the first match, the the one that Regal won, he basically kayfabe dislocated Ambrose's shoulder into the uh, corner steps. That's the big spot in this match is. So Ambrose is pretty much dominated by Regal for like the first 10 minutes of this match. And the big thing is he puts his arm between the ring posts and the ring steps and starts kicking it and stomping in there, trying to do another dislocation thing. And then eventually um, Ambrose gets on offense and just ends up ruining this old guy's life in a way. He takes off a turnbuckle pad. He does a bunch of uh, kicks, kicking the head into the turnbuckle. And that's what busted his ear open. And then, Basically, he was. They had to stop the match, and uh, Ambrose took him out. Uh, there was a moment where it's very much a I, I I'm so sorry, I love you moment where uh where uh, Regal kind of like applauded him and then tell him to do him in, and he ate a uh, Regal knee and was knocked out. And that was the last thing they had on FCW TV was this very like wild thing that again, like in a lot of ways, I like watching these. Moxley's a territory guy in 2020 and because this felt like a territory, like big few blow off match, especially given how FCW was at the time. Absolutely. Yeah. He's a real, he's a real throwback in that way. Uh, and it was a good reminder to me that, you know, I know Moxley is doing this thing where he's like, remember we're the good guys. And he's been like this white meat baby face, but this was a good reminder of that. There's a ton of money in John Moxley as a heel and there's a, a huge heel run for him in AEW that they haven't, they don't even have to get close to anytime soon, but they can use that uh, for, for several years if they want to. Uh, but this was also, and I don't know that he's done as good of a job in any AEW match as he did in this. It's like when you're a really good brawler, uh, you also have to be really good at selling, you know, if you really want to be able to, to pay it off. And he was great here, you know, the way that he worked over the shoulder. But then, and this is something I was talking about on, uh, Jumping Bomb Audio, my Joshi podcast, about limb matches. And Taylor, was, I was criticizing a match because of poor limb selling. And Taylor's like, okay, yeah, but when do you ever hear people say, oh, this was a great match that had to do with limb selling? You know, people more criticize poor limb selling than celebrate good limb selling. So this is exactly an example of a great limb selling match. And then Mox says the thing, okay, this is not going to feature into the finish, this shoulder deal. So he like, it may be a little over the top, but he goes out of his way to show that he is like putting his shoulder back into place and like, okay, I really got to like do something so that my shoulder doesn't bother me. And then he's fine the rest of the match. But to me, that's enough to be like, okay, the shoulder's okay. Like I buy that. So uh, he, he did a great job with that there. Um, another interesting thing about this match to me, I think about this a lot. And maybe this is uh, Nate's influence. It's like, what makes a good wrestling match? To me, this was a great match. I loved this match. I thought it was a ton of fun. The crowd did not give a single shit about it. Had no interest in it. <laughs> These crowds in Tampa were terrible for us yeah. the entire time. I'm sure. But it made me think about like uh, that Benoit Malenko match at uh, Hog Wild or whatever, where the crowd hates it, but it goes on for like 40 minutes. And it's a killer match. Uh, but then I thought about like the uh, the Ishii match yeah, that we'll talk about in a minute. The crowd's going fucking nuts for it. So it's like, I don't know. Is it who are wrestling matches for, right? If this match was for the wrestling fans who were watching it, then it was a great match. If it's for the live crowd, it wasn't a very good match because they did not get into the shoulder work or 
any of the stuff with Regal really at all until the end when it really started uh, breaking down. So anyway, I'm not sure that that's part of what we're talking about on this show, but uh, it was interesting to me. I think that's like an interesting point, though. I think that it's something that especially with someone like Regal, who is always bandied about as like well, some of these all time great wrestlers and you're leading a young guy through this feud and it's it's Regal's legitimacy that is the thing at stake here because Ambrose is coming in there just saying like, oh, uh, OK, well, fuck you, old man, I'm going to do this thing. But it's Regal's gravitas that's supposed to like ground people and like and get them more invested in this because it's like can the old guy like shut up the upstart and it's almost i would say a ding on regal in a way for him being like this veteran who wasn't necessarily working to a crowd that to be fair against them there were never any hot fcw crowds but you know that that lot i think that more is shouldered on his feet there yeah i think now there comes a time and I, you know i wasn't watching fcw consistently so you know, maybe it's like comes a time when you're like, you know what? These crowds are not going to be into whatever we do. So let's just do what we think is good, you know, and, th- and that's understandable. And I sure. would I would appreciate that uh, because, I mean, I'm obviously biased from having watched wrestling for uh, a long ass part of my life and being very deep into it. But to me, this is a very good match, even when it falls apart. It's very compelling. So it's, uh, I don't know. That makes it really hard to judge like from an objective standpoint, whether this is good or not. But to me, it's very good. And I would recommend anybody listening to this uh, to go seek it out if you haven't seen it. Yeah, I'll make sure to have all these matches in our show notes so people can check it out. And it's something that really, it's this next match and talking about his WWE stint is like the big aberration here. Because I think if you take the other four matches, you see... John Moxley as we've mentioned nuke newfangled bruiser Brody in a way uh, we've talked about promos like this, but as a territory wrestler, because he's a territory guy and you could tell he's a territory guy here. Now we kind of go forward a year later, the shield makes the review at Rus- at survivor series 2012, helping CM Punk defend the WWE title in a three-way match against the Ryback and John Cena. And they kind of, just got called up out of nowhere. It's interesting to note that Moxley was in FCW and NXT was launched while he was in developmental. Moxley was never on NXT TV. Uh, of course, Seth Rollins, the former NXT champion, and Roman Reigns, they kind of had him on and off TV, but they put this group of three guys together. The story, of course, goes that Punk wanted to have Chris Hero in instead of Roman Reigns, but the company knew that Roman Reigns was going to be the star but it would be Ambrose, Rollins, and Reigns, and they would have formed the Shield, a trio, and for most of the, like, the first part of their WWE career, they would be known mostly as a insanely effective trio, and it starts off here at the TLC pay-per-view in 2012 where the Shield has a six-man TLC match with Daniel Bryan and Kane. They were Team Hell, Hell No at the time, and the Ryback and... Interesting match to go back and watch. I would say this is the one match that I would say held up the least in my in my Ali's five matches. Also, what a story of these matches as the order we watch them in is uh, watching the uh, quality of the commentary. So we started out with Lenny Leonard, who is uh, for my money the, probably the best commentator in wrestling, uh, and then we went to 
Jim Ross, who frankly was better in that FCW match than I anticipated going in. He did a pretty good job of telling the story. Uh, but then, my God, this Michael Cole, JBL, Jerry Lawler commentary team is its just awful to listen to, especially at the height of, uh, you know, JBL talking shit about, you know, uh, Daniel Bryan at every chance he gets. It's just miserable to listen to. A whole lot of world's toughest vegan comments. The yeah. goat. Yeah. Uh, no, no, and yes, yes. And just like kind of like pulls you out of it after like watching the other ones. And then even I mean, comparing this commentary to Kevin Kelly, by far the worst one we've had on this thing. And not necessarily that strong at putting over your new uh, huge heel trio here in this match. No, not at all. They spent way more, which I know they needed to get over this story about whether they were working for CM Punk or whatever, but they spent way more time doing that than ever trying to make us believe that these guys were really dangerous or whatever. Um, probably goes along with this note that you included from The Observer where apparently people within WWE were worried about Ambrose and Rollins being in this match because you know they'd only done like uh, small houses before. And it's like, okay, well, if you've ever watched Moxley work before, He's going to fit in just fine in this match. It's going to be okay. Uh, and I think that was that was clear from this. It's like, I'm very tired of these matches. I don't really have any interest in watching another TLC match, uh, probably as long as I live. And so this graded on me pretty quickly. But if I, I, I honed in on, well, two things. One, Ryback was cool as shit. And it, it sucks that he was uh, taken away from us too soon. Uh, but when I was also honing in on just like what Mox was doing, it's like, okay, this is a guy we hear so much about guys who come into WWE and they have to dramatically change their style. I was thinking a lot about Ricochet and how they kind of took away what Ricochet was good at and uh, neutered him. And obviously, and now he sucks and isn't over. And you like wonder why, but you see Mox, basically he could just do what he did. I mean, he's not doing like as bloody a stuff as he would have done on the Indies. Uh, but still basically his same brawling style. So it worked pretty well. Yeah. I mean, he's a smart enough guy and especially in retrospect, like when I, now he's doing these interviews that he's willing to be more open about his thoughts on the wrestling industry and the thoughts is like a wrestling person. Like he was always going to be fine. Like he knew to kind of roll it back here. And it's just interesting. Like Ryback at the time was probably at like his most over. Cause he's feuding with CM Punk over the WWE title. Uh, I mean, the Ryback was just at peak Ryback at that time. And then it just made you really like you watch this match. And the, like my biggest takeaway away from Moxley is they really put Reigns up in the main roster way before he was ready. And maybe that's part of the reason why they were a little bit worried about Ambrose and Rollins because they would have to do almost all the heavy lifting in this match. Yeah, but they did. I mean, and they were good at it. Uh, there are cool spots in this match. It's just like, it's so overdone, you know, that it's hard to uh, get worked up about. Thinking about uh, Michael Cole, uh, he had a, a line at one point that I love where he's like, oh, the Ryback who claims that, quote, I love destruction. <laughs> Just, God. <laughs> yeah, it was bad. But yeah, uh, you had like some some big crazy spots here. It had everything you, like if you are into this style of match, it had everything you want that you could possibly want out of it. Um, but most importantly, you know, we just saw that, uh, that Mox was just Mox. I mean, he's just, now he's got a tech vest on or whatever. 
they like really try to do a lot of things to John Moxley's look throughout the shield. They had the tech vest. He had the sleeveless hoodie for a bit. He had like the earring that he had on and then like wife beater. Like, like the, I think it's very clear. Like this is the only WWE match that we watch of this. They had no idea what to do with, with John Moxley over the eight years. He was with that company. Yeah. As I was watching this, I was like, Oh, maybe we should have watched one of the like Seth Rollins matches. And I was like, fuck, I would not have wanted to sit through <laughs> one of those matches. But it, it goes back to what you said earlier, Mike, which is that the house style that became prevalent in WWE just did not go with, with Moxley's style. And it didn't help that if you look back when, uh, when, that, when the Rollins heel turn first happened, Ambrose was super hot. And that's exactly when they veered into making him you know, the goofy clown character and just killed all the momentum he had. I mean, Ambrose was basically what the Moxley character at AW is now. That's what he was going for. And it would have been very successful and over, uh, but they just killed him with nonsense. And that's kind of the story of his WWE career. That's, I did not figure we'd spend a whole lot of time on that. It's just not that interesting. I would argue that nearly everyone here has either lived through it or if you're listening to this like you're you're enough aware about it and of course moxley has talked about it they just didn't had no idea what to do with john moxley throughout his career like the only time it seemed like that an idea to do with him it kind of feels like fcw was the only time it's like this is what he should be doing and then as soon as he made the main roster and they broke away in the shield they turned him into like the cartoon character and then he kind of got it a little bit back when he was champion and then became like this weird like uh plague obsessed person on his way out and uh you know he's just kind of like they they booked a guy who as a kid counted wwe and wcw as like his outlets from it from a bad childhood and like this was all he ever wanted to do and it's very easy to see how john moxley got so poisoned by the wwe apparatus by the time he left they should have teamed late era john moxley with uh recent era drake younger oh god they really could have had some fun uh, conspiracy uh, addled minds there. Uh, yeah. If you are listening to this and thinking, oh, but I want to go back and revisit some some Moxley in WWE. The only thing, and I haven't gone back to watch these, but you know, basically you're going to want to watch these big Shield trios matches. That's where you're going to get your best or your most mileage. I, I went back not too long ago, uh, but not that recently, and watched the big Wyatt's one that was uh, really well-regarded. And it was still very good, as I recall then. Uh, they had those matches with Evolution that were good. So basically, they didn't do anything good with with this team, but they were able to have good matches. Uh, Shield was having like cool little matches. I remember, wow, I was really WWE-pilled there for a while, and I would watch like SmackDown and shit. And they would oh, have... Sure. They would have cool trios matches that were just like meant nothing, but they'd be good. So there's plenty of good stuff to seek out uh, from that like shield trios era, but they never did anything. As you said, uh, interesting with Dean Ambrose as a character. Yeah, no, I was watching, I was DVRing and watching SmackDown. Like as I was doing laundry, just because like you get like a 20 minute shield trios match and it would be a, more often than not be like a three and a quarter to three and three quarter star trios match. It'd be like 20 minutes long. You probably had Daniel Bryan in it as well. And he works really well for all three of these guys. 
interestingly enough, even Batista and that, like the late part of his run, he was doing really good stuff. I mean, big Dave always owned though. Yeah. Well, once he got back in ring shape, you know, he was kind of gassed when he first showed up, but it's something though. Uh, interesting enough, uh, not a lot of crossover between John Moxley and Brian Danielson and D Dragon Gate USA. Both of them were at Dragon Gate USA at the same time did not cross paths. However, there was like one match that they had that was kind of interesting and like his second tour, but he was not really necessarily like kind of like the figure that would those who cross over. But I'm kind of sad. We never really got like a long old school uh, Daniel Bryan versus John Moxley uh, storyline. I feel like those two guys, like when we talk about them not doing anything of this, I would just say you have six months. Y'all figure this out. You all are smart enough to figure this out. And it could have been something special. What what's your like, like if you were booking a, a John Moxley dream match from like those times, you know, not today, but if you're like looking back into the past of a match that never happened uh, or, you know, didn't kind of get what it should have gotten, like who's a guy you think would have had a really killer match with indie era uh, or even early WWE era, John Moxley. Oh, I think the person I would call up is peak ring of honor, uh, peak ring of honor, Samojo. I think that that is an interesting That's one because how Moxley can sell and be like that kind of thing. And the promos would be solid there. And we know that both of them can brawl and just beat the shit out of each other. Like that is 2004 Samojo versus 2010. John Moxley is the match I would have liked to see. That's good. I like that. Um, I'm searching right now to see if the match that, that I want has ever happened. Uh, but to me, I don't, I mean, this may be just uh, a B core, but uh, <laughs> a John Moxley low key match. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right. We're, we'll talk in a minute about uh, the Ishii and, and Chris Dickinson matches, but it's like Moxley seems to, Okay, they actually had a match at Jersey All-Pro in 2011. So I would love to see that. Uh, but Moxley seems to enjoy when somebody like hits him a little too hard, you know? Sure, <laughs> you yeah. know Loki would. So I just imagine that would be uh, a lot of fun. Uh, Jersey All-Pro was this February 5th, 2011. Main event, Dan Math defeats Raven. <laughs> That's, that sounds really Jersey All-Pro to me. Look, <laughs> yeah. look, 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 like if you're going to say, okay, Mike, pick one uh, Jersey All-Pro guy and pick one uh, famous person, I would have guessed Dan Math <laughs> versus uh, uh, ver- f- fuck Raven. 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 That's it. Well, the, yeah. The show is actually called Quote the Raven. <laughs> oh, fuck that. <laughs> but Just, yeah, there, there was a low-key John Moxley match, so I'll, I'm going to have to see if I can... If I can find the show. Uh, so, oh yeah, go ahead. Sorry. I was just, I would love to see the match. That's it. So Brian Danielson did face John Moxley in DGUSA. It was in Milwaukee. It was a really strong match. I just had to look up to kind of do like that. So like they had like a really strong territory style match. Now that I remember what it is. A territory style match out of it. It's just WWE just had no idea what to do with them. And that quickly kind of degenerated to him sticking around and then like sticking time on his contract. It finally expired after April 21st, 2019, where they did a network show where, where Moxley said he was famously only paid $500 for that show for the network. And then he went underground until John Moxley made his appearance at double or nothing one in Las Vegas, Nevada over uh, it was Memorial day weekend, 2019. And 
out of nowhere, John Moxley was back and everything kind of changed in a lot of ways. I would say at least with like North American wrestling, because John Moxley walked into AEW after the main event at double or nothing laid out both of them and just kind of like made his mark as that he would be the guy in AEW. And it's kind of wild thing that it was, that's only 19 months ago, 19 months ago. It's also like really hard to remember now. Uh, and maybe I ate crow on this, but I think I was right, but I was proven wrong. I don't know. I was right and wrong. I think all at the same time, but I questioned whether it was a big deal to get Moxley in AEW. He was so destroyed by that WWE run. Like his aura, his charisma was so destroyed that I was like, uh, I don't know. Do I really want to see this guy on a weekly basis? And when he came out at double or nothing, it was like a, a light switch flipped immediately. And I was like, okay, yeah, this guy's a big, huge star and he's going to kill it here. But uh, it was definitely a concern because of how badly he was beaten down by WWE. And I remember that when he came in and like when he was out, I was someone that I'll take my L that I thought he would disappear. And randomly 10 years now, we'd see him at like a guitar center and outside <laughs> of like uh, Reno, Nevada. But he it's something that has become really clear after like he's talked about wrestling after he left WWE and I know I've gone back to that whole time, but also like seeing what his mindset was before that this is a guy who some way somehow was going to become a lifer in wrestling. This is in a lot of ways. I know we make comments about that. We think that the biggest expenditure in AEW should be therapy in a lot of ways. Wrestling is John Moxley's therapy and it's so natural now. 19 months later, just to think about like he's as ingrained in AEW, arguably more so than someone like Chris Jericho, who could just disappear tomorrow. I'm like, yep, you know, that's fine. Or he's up there at the bucks and the elite as like the, someone who's like interwoven into the fabric of the company now, 19 months later. Absolutely. Uh, and you know, it's been interesting because, you know, one of the first things we found out after double or nothing was that he would also be working with new Japan. And, or I can't remember how that timing worked out, but we knew them roughly around the same time that he was working for both companies. And of course, uh, COVID has impacted international travel in a way that we haven't really seen how that relationship would have played out, you know, whether he would have, how often he would have been in Japan. Uh, and I guess, you know, we hopefully we'll still get to see that in the future of how that's going to work out, whether he's going to be working at Wrestle Kingdom, et cetera. Uh, but I do think it would have been fascinating to see how those two things were balanced. Yeah. And it's something now that Howard may being out, uh, when we're recording this, uh, Kenny Omega did an interview with Dave Meltzer and Garrett on W on W O N F four W talking about how the relationship now changes without Harold may in charge. So it does seem like that we were robbed of what this relationship would be with Moxley up until COVID. And now we're going to see what the new relationship is with AEW going forward. But when he went over to Japan, his first match, he won the IWGP US title from Juice Robinson, and then he entered the G1. So this was happening right before TV started for AEW, and he decided to go over to Japan and do a full G1. And one of his biggest matches in the next match we're going to be talking about was from uh, the uh, G1 Climax 29 at a Corken Hall on July 19th, 2019, him versus Tomohiro Ishii. And as someone who's mostly out on New Japan, this is the first time I saw this match leading up here. And boy, did it look like this is a guy that one of his big highlights in life was wrestling at Corken Hall. Yeah, he absolutely 
I, I don't know. I mean, maybe the Brody thing's lazy, but it just, he does feel like a guy that's like, oh yeah, wrestling in Japan is a big deal. You know, like he understood that and appreciated it and was happy to be there. Uh, yeah, he also, I, I mean, we learned a little bit of this from the Jericho interview, but he just, it seemed that he was paying more attention to New Japan than I would have realized because he seemed to understand Ishii immediately and like grasp uh, who he was and what kind of match they should have against each other. And I know from a uh, very personal uh, history or experience that Ishii doesn't speak a fucking word of English. <laughs> so it's not like they uh, talk this match out before they got in the ring together. Uh, I mean, obviously I'm sure they you know, work with translators or whatever to try to figure some things out, but I mean, that's shooter's job there. That that Shota Minu's job is trying to get these two guys yeah. on the same page for this match. Like, like that's the, that, that's why he had a young boy was to be like, Hey, showed Hey shooter. I need you to tell him that we're going to go brawl around Cork and Hall for like 10 minutes. <laughs> right. Uh, you know, a fun thing here was we got to see him use, uh, you know, Regal's uh, knee lift strike that and Kevin Kelly called it out as a William Regal move. So that was a nice bit of symmetry for this project uh, that we were doing. And I was, you know, this is kind of where I started thinking about what I was talking about earlier, because uh, Kevin Kelly and Rocky Romero were trying to compare Moxley to other New Japan guys. Like what kind of guy has Ishii wrestled before who's like Moxley? And Kevin Kelly bizarrely throws out uh, Katsuyori Shibata, which is like, I just don't understand <laughs> at all what those two people have in common. But that started making me think about it. And I was like, what are the aspects of Moxley's ring work that you would pull out? And it's like, well, there's not any. I mean, yeah. and and I said earlier that I came out of this project with a deeper respect for his ring work. But despite that, there's just like, there's just not a thing, a wrestling thing this guy is uh, exceptional at. And I think that showed here. Uh, but still, he was able to have a really good, I mean, a match that I liked a lot uh, with Ishii. A little too long for me in classic New Japan fashion. Yeah. Um, but comparing it to that FCW match earlier, the crowd loved every minute of it. So hard for me to uh, criticize the length of it. No, it's something that like in this match, and I feel like this is, more of a testament to Ishii and the idea that he kept so much tabs on what was going on in the wrestling world. He knew the kind of like what he should do in this match. So Ishii could exhibit his best quality, which is just taking a fucking beating and looking like an absolute unit. And it played off like this match very much. So if the Regal match was him selling Regal and getting that over before having the finish where he conclusively uh, destroyed the guy, this was basically Ishii taking everything that Moxley gave him and then coming back and that made a, him look like a tough motherfucker. And it worked. And the crowd bought into everything here, even stuff that's a little bit cringe, like a dorky chair fight. <laughs> I don't, the cringiest part to me was the, the headbutt exchange because it's like, yeah. it's just so poorly worked. And it's like, guys, if you're going to headbutt, I mean, I'm not saying they should shoot headbutt each other. But if you're going to do this spot, it's got to look a little better uh, than this. Uh, the chair thing, I, I don't know. Mox kind of has that charisma that lets you buy into kind of goofy things sometimes. <laughs> that was That's like, true. That's true. Okay, this is kind of fun. But it's like, what was what else was interesting? I think you're exactly right about kind of the story of the match. But Mox also sold pretty well for Ishii on like some big, like the there's a shoulder tackle spot. And, you know, Mox sold it like death. You know, he like flipped backwards, like rolled over for it. So he really put over Ishii as like, 
Yeah, he's also not only is this guy strong enough to like knock down all these uh, the Japanese guys that he normally works with, but here's a six four, you know, WWE guy, and he can knock me on my ass too. So I thought he did a good job of putting Ishii over too uh, in a match that he would ultimately win. Yeah, it, it, it's basically, I think, if you're looking for like a capsulation of what that era of G1 was and the idea of a foreigner coming in here, this is like the textbook example of it. I mean, this was, uh, Meltzer gave it five stars. I mean, it's Meltzer. I don't, we really haven't talked star ratings. So I don't think that's really the point of this series in a way. <laughs> but Meltzer gave it five stars. But this was worked to both these guys' strengths. It was Moxley being aware and coming into New Japan and at least having enough of a knowledge of it that he does not feel like he is uh, just along for the ride. Like he was engaged in the culture. You know how we talk about engaging with the culture. Uh, John Moxley got New Japan culture and got like, this is the guy of this is not the kind of match I should have against someone else. I need to have this with Tomohiro Ishii. And I mean, 20 minute match, like it in G1 style, you know, I mean that, that there's a lot that we could be judicious about and take care of, but to like show to have like John Moxley basically as this uh, territory guy, like doing his Japan run, it felt like a, he fit like a glove. Yeah. Now it is night six. So I guess he's, if he'd never seen Ishii before, he's at least seen five of his matches before this, you know, so he's got some idea, but you have to pay real close attention. Uh, but something that's interesting, and this is also true of the, of the uh, blood sport match that we'll talk about last is I've already said that Mox really doesn't change his style from the beginning to the end. But despite that, it's weird. He doesn't do any different moves really, but he's still able to adapt what he does to all these different places. He never seems out of place in a pretty wide variety of environments that we've talked about here. So that, that also really goes to like uh, his, his value and his, um, his goodness, that's not the word I want, but you know what I mean, as a worker. His quality, his quality. His is quality good. as a worker, yes. And it's also something that, like, I don't have any other big takeaways for the Yishi match unless you do, but I think... No, it's just, if you like this style, this New Japan style, you'll love this match. It's like a right. very good version of of that style. Yeah, and but like you're like talking about like him adapting and it's him understanding the thing that he's able to do so and understanding like the stakes and like what his opponents are. Because in this series, we had a bloody I quit match. We had a kind of territorial like feud ender. We had like the WWE spectacle. We had the New Japan sprint. And now we have Bloodsport. This was from October of this year from The Collective. Y'all heard me talk about this match before. This is Josh Barnett's Bloodsport 3. What a road it took for John Moxley to finally show up at Bloodsport. First, he was going to be at a Bloodsport, I think like right after All Out against Josh Barnett, but he had MRSA, so they pulled him from that. Then he was going to go against Josh Barnett in Tampa. COVID happened, but finally we had John Moxley versus Chris Dickinson, the Dirty Daddy, with our close personal friend of the program, Lenny Leonard, on the call. And what, just like off the top, like what was your like thoughts about Moxley adapting again to the system and then him like kind of showing up in Indianapolis as the biggest star in the world. And it's just kind of like a wild thing. Like, like what was your, your thoughts about this match in general? Yeah, he comes out and the place uh, goes insane and, you know, he's in a fucking sweatshirt and his trunks 
And I'm like, oh, yeah, this guy's a huge star, even though he kind of looks like a goof. You know, if you didn't know who he was, you're like, what, what do you have on here? Uh, but it works for him somehow. He jumps in the ring. And this match is very different than any of the other matches that we've talked about, just because he goes a lot more for a little bit of grappling, a little bit of submission, technical submission wrestling that he really didn't do uh, in any of these other matches. But it that's because it fits perfectly with the style, but he doesn't have to do a lot of offense that he doesn't normally do. I mean, he doesn't do a lot of these like uh, leg holds, you know, that he does in this match, but it kind of fits perfectly. Um, you know, he's in there with Chris Dickinson, who I think anybody who's listened to me ever knows that I love Chris Dickinson. I think he's great. He was great here. I felt, you know, it brought back up again, just how bad I felt for Dickinson. Like one of the guys who suffered the most, you know, on a professional level, not on uh, a lot of other levels, but suffered the most from COVID wiping out WrestleMania weekend. And, you know, Lenny Leonard talked about that on the call. And I uh, was glad to see Mox working in there with him and giving him a lot, you know, so that Dickinson got to shine in the match. Uh, the slap spot where Moxley, they were like tied up and they broke out of it and Moxley slapped him and then Dickinson slapped the fuck out of him back. Uh, I really thought it was going to take off at that point, but then they kind of slowed it down with some more submission work. So it was a, uh, a a good match, a very good match, I would even say. I'm not sure it got kind of that next level I really wanted it to of them just like beating the shit out of each other in a way. But that's not really the style of, of Bloodsport, not really like what they were going for. Uh, so I thought it worked on just about every level. The crowd loved it and uh, everybody came out looking uh, better after the match and it solidified my view of just like Mox as this guy who is again this is a positive comment is all aura that's just like that's what he is uh that's what he brings to wrestling is his this chameleon uh, adaptability uh style that we've talked about and the aura that he just ratchets every match up several levels and his adaptability was like my big takeaway from this because the Bloodsport matches, no pinfalls, uh, no rope breaks, there are no ropes, and no turnbuckles, uh, and it's just submission or DQ, but he adapts to the surroundings. The big things was on this show where not a lot of people were ever getting out of the ring, he used the ring very deliberately as like, I'm over my, I'm out of my depth in submitting with uh, Chris Dickinson, so I'm not going to try to convert this here. I'm going to try to roll him over. I'm bigger than him. I'll roll him over there. And of course, like, the big post spot where he shoved him into the posts and that really kind of set up Dickinson for like the last few minutes in the match where it was Moxley kind of taking control and then being able to submit him with the bulldog choke. And it's just something that like you saw him come out there and you're just like, Oh, he's the biggest star in the world, but he found a way as the biggest star in the world to make Chris Dickinson like walk away from this match. And you're like, Oh, Chris Dickinson was probably like one more flurry away from submitting a double champion at that time. And I thought like that was, Something that like uh, he went from being the territorial upstart to now being the traveling champion and was like did the big thing that you want out of your traveling champion in the territory era, which is put over like the guy and the territory you're visiting and the upstart. And I feel like that Dickinson in this like defeat, like this is like I always hate the idea of people saying, oh, this person looked great in the feed. This person gained a lot of defeat. But for like Dickinson at this point, who really kind of is one of the guys on the Indies has kind of brought Dickinson up there, like showing like, yeah, no, he is on Moxley's level in a lot of ways. Oh, absolutely. I don't think you can watch this without 
coming away with um, the realization, if you didn't have it before, that Chris Dickinson could absolutely work in AEW. Um, I mean, he should never do this, but he would hold his own in WWE also if he wanted to. Uh, He doesn't have to be, uh, you know, the dirty daddy to to be uh, as high level as he can be. He's just great. And the idea, you know, I'm sorry, I've done this rant so many times, but the idea that he's not signed to a major company is insane, especially after working this match with Moxley. Um, You have to think that Moxley went back and said, "Ah, have we thought about Dickinson? Have we thought about bringing him in? You know, Uh, you'd love to see that. So maybe we will eventually. I certainly hope so. Yeah, yeah. And really, the as you said, Dickinson was the one person that um, he's talked about it. He was going to like be working in Japan all the time this year. Like he, this was supposed to be Chris Dickinson's year. And it's sad how it kind of turned out with that, especially like WrestleMania was face Shingo Takagi at WrestleMania. I mean, come on, guys. That's uh, if you're not down for that match, I don't know what, what you're doing, what we're doing here. But this kind of in a way would have had a little bit of redeeming to Dickinson's 2020 saying like, Hey, I could have this. And if Tony Khan or people at AEW aren't going to bring in Chris Dickinson, then you're looking at like a systemic issue that you need to figure out there. Like there's an institutional failure there because he made your star, your champion look like even more of a badass, And he came away looking even better of it. Like he's the perfect kind of person that if they are looking to expand that way, Chris Dickinson would be one of my first phone calls. Especially after seeing how well Eddie Kingston has worked in AEW, uh, if if there was any question about how Chris Dickinson would fit, I think Eddie Kingston has put any of that to rest. Not that they're all that similar as far as like in ring style, but they come from a they have a similar uh, aura about them or like a oh, similar sure. charisma. So I think that makes sense. But you know, uh, maybe Chris is thinking, look when. When this uh, gate gets opened back up, I'm going to be in Japan, and that's what I want to do. You know, yeah, I could easily believe he's a guy who wants to go to Japan and have a run there. So maybe he's just holding out for that. Uh, although I've gotten the sense from some of his public comments that he's just not been offered any deals by mm-hmm. the major American companies, which uh, is is malpractice, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's an indictment on the entire industry there, if you ask me. And it, you brought like that thing again, Lenny Leonard the best guy on commentary bringing up like the idea early in this match talking about Dick Kingston because this was, this match happened before between their first match and between the uh, pay-per-view match saying that Kingston awakened something in him like did this like do something with Moxley and just being able to kind of weave this into like an overall kind of story like interpromotional story of like Moxley trying to reach back and I guess reach and find like aspects of his career that he left behind. And I thought like that I, I can't believe, I don't think that Tony Khan or someone said, Hey, hammer this point. That's just Lenny Leonard being the best in the world at what he does. Yeah. He's another guy. I mean, obviously they have a ton of uh, commentators, but if they want a good one, they should hire Lenny Leonard uh, because yeah, I mean, I can't think of anyone. I think off the top of my head is better than Lenny is. Um, he certainly, uh, one of, if not the best, in the entire world. Uh, Excalibur, I think, is also very good. Uh, but Lenny's probably better than Excalibur. So uh, hard to think of anybody else off the top of my head who's better than he is. So more, there's plenty of talent out there that AEW hasn't mined. <laughs> that's for sure. But, you know, just thinking about uh, John Moxley after watching all these. Man, I love doing these. I love just watching, like, 
uh, several matches of one guy or like spanning his whole career and, and talking about it and looking for the through line and looking for how things change. Like this is so much fun to me. I just want to do a million more of these episodes. <laughs> well, I had a blast. And I'm glad that you like the matches I picked for this. Yeah. This was, this was a little bit more of my thing. And I made you open the gate a little bit. So you did, you did it. You know, maybe you do have to open the dragon gate to be good. Maybe we just have to take that away here. I mean, maybe that's the big thing here, but yeah, I know this was a blast. Uh, I, it's interesting. I think that through this and the, there were th- some things I already knew about John Moxley before getting into this and like kind of taking a step back and viewing him through this, this, uh, this certain like lens or microscope. But I really came out of this, like thinking like he is someone that is just so clearly a time traveler from another age, like coming here. And a lot of people who are like, who seem like that they are out of time don't work, but he seems like that he's the person that at least for like the last 10 years he takes the aspects of being a traveling territory guy and being like a bruiser brody influence and being like this just complete sheer force that you can easily see in like world class in the 80s or you could have saw him in smoky mountain with ron wright the two of them cutting promos back and forth at each other and then coming today and it's very clear to me like this run that he's had over the last like 18 months if it's not like the best of his career, it feels like this is the most fully actualized of a guy who even 10 years ago seemed to have the idea of what he was wanting to be and finally kind of reaching that point. Absolutely. You know, it's, and it's, you know, you can look back at his early stuff and say, well, he's kind of toned down some things, but also, you know, all of us grow over 15 years as humans. And I think he's, He's not been rounded off in the way that WWE wanted to do to him, you know, because he's gained back some of that edge that he lost while he was there. But he's kind of like just a the perfectly honed version of, you know, the John Moxley that I saw in DG USA. It's like, okay, well, if you change this and change this a little bit, and it's uh, you know, something that a lot of people talk about as far as like wrestlers, it's that thing where, you know, when your body and your mind, you know, the the de-evolution of your body and the evolution of your mind kind of meet up at this one level and Moxley's there, right? Like he's not as athletic or as fluid as he was in that DG USA match. Uh, but he has a better idea. I'm confident without having watched, you know, that whole DG USA run, but I'm confident that he has a better idea of how to, uh, adapt his style to everything because we've seen that, you know, in the, in the new Japan and the, the blood sport match here, uh, that he really knows how to do that. Uh, we've seen that. We're going to see that, I bet, in this like straight-up match he's going to have with Kenny Omega versus the like weapons match that he had with Kenny Omega. So uh, it's going to be going to continue to be fascinating to see how he adapts to the different types of people they have in AEW for him to wrestle. Yeah, and I think that's going to be really intriguing to see him provide that aspect and see where he goes into 2021 and to see what all is out there for John Moxley. Like this was, he's oddly like, even for like being a promo guy and a very compelling promo guy, I kind of find like his aura and that, and this idea that we've kind of developed of him just being like this kind of finally actualized person and actualized character and taking these aspects there. And I'm really intrigued to see where he goes from here. I think that it's going to be a very interesting next 24 months for John Moxley. 
I agree, especially if he's going to lose the belt to Omega, as we all kind of assume. It's like, well, what comes next for the Moxley character? I said earlier, I think there's a there's a heel run in there somewhere. I don't think it's time to do that yet at all. But there is a, a long uh, heel run that he can have for sure. Uh, so, you know, that's something else to look forward to. Uh, but we'll kind of see what the chapter is for him after losing the title. Uh, so, uh, yeah, definitely. He's a guy that I'm honestly, after watching these matches and thinking about this and doing the show, I'm more interested in John Moxley than I was before we started uh, preparing for the show. Yeah, no, for sure. And I'm glad that we chose this as the next topic. Uh, we will in the show notes, I'll have links to all these matches and I'll, I'll try to find the really weird promo that I was talking about. The one that like when he just got back into wrestling and throw it in there as well. But I think that's going to do it for this episode. AB, do you have anything else you want to hit on before we get out of here? No, we'll just, uh, I guess we're going to try to do this monthly. I think that's yeah. the idea going forward. So we'll regroup and see uh, who the next person that we want to do is and whether it makes sense for, uh, for me and Mike to do that episode, <laughs> depending on who it is, you know, uh, there's certainly some that I have that I've had planned previously that I had ideas uh, for guests for. And at some point, you know, like I always complain about the company, we're going to have to also admit that women exist and do a women, uh, woman wrestler, uh, so, you know, maybe I'll reach out to, uh, someone who watches a little more women's wrestling yeah. than either of us has in the past, uh, who can help with something like that. So we'll kind of see who's next. I'm, I was scrolling through the roster here toward the end thinking about like, Hmm, where should we go next? So we'll have to figure I, that out. I'm going to put this out here. And sadly, I don't think I'm the person to be on this episode. I think Hikaru Shida probably is the person that is next, especially like Riho would have been the obvious one, but since Riho obviously isn't yeah. around right now. It seems like a Karashida, unless you were going to go, I wouldn't want to do that. SEU. Like that's the only other thing maybe. Okay. That's interesting. Well, see, I was, you know, it depends of like how you want to do this. If you want to knock all the right. top people out early, it's like, well, we still need to do an Omega episode. Yeah. So, you know, that's, and especially if he's going to win the title uh, in December, that might be interesting. Uh, and yeah, Shida was the other one I, I've thought about a lot. Uh, and if we're going down the champions, obviously Darby Allen is one uh, that we could do. And uh, I've actually, I previously had a Darby Allen. This is planned. So we may circle back to that uh, in the future. But yeah, those are definitely some ideas for where we'll go next with this series. Yeah, for sure. And if y'all have any like bigger, per is there someone we're forgetting for this is <laughs> that like, and if there's like a groundswell that wants us to really do a, this is Orange Cassidy, like just. Let us know. Let us know. We'll, we'll, we'll like to have like like to see what what y'all think of this. But thank you all for listening. Uh, Ab, thank you for uh, having me on for this one. This one was a blast. I hope you got something out of this. Absolutely, I did. Thanks for putting this all together and uh, leading us through this episode. I had uh, as great a time as I did on the Jericho episode. So this was a lot of fun. For sure, for sure. And that's going to do it for this episode of This Is John Moxley. We'll be back with you. Later this week with uh, just the usual weekly things. I don't know if we have anything special cooked up this week, but we'll we'll, we'll, we'll do something. We'll do something. We I'm trying to think we of will. a way to close this out. <laughs> all right, bud. Well, all right, uh, right y'all. We'll catch yeah. you next time. <laughs> all right, bye. A B again. <laughs> Thought it'd be funny to jump in at the end of this show again and just say, if you enjoyed that, like I hope you did. Just head over to patreon.com slash everything elite and subscribe. Uh, but regardless, stay keyed into this feed. We'll be back on 
the next Thursday, whatever time you're listening to this, when Thursday comes around, we'll be back with a free show. Thanks, everyone, again for listening. Uh, It means a lot to all of us. We really appreciate it.